The South Carolina Senate passed its second reading of the Human Life Protection Act. President Biden makes his re-election official. Commercial real estate values fall to dangerously low levels, and an IRS whistleblower gains credibility. This is Truth in Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Beam, and it's time to crank it up. Well, for some reason, we're not cranking it up. <laughs> oh, I love it when technology works, don't you? Especially when you have to do it live. Uh, I have no idea why the opening theme is not playing. Uh, it should be. I'm Bluetoothed up here. Hang on just a second. You know what? We're going to take a second and try to get this right. Oh, I see why now. For some reason, the connection's been lost. And I have no idea why. Okay, well, we're not going to worry about that. We're just going to keep rolling. Welcome into the program. Glad that you're listening today. Sorry we don't have the um, crank it up sound effects. That's always one of my favorite part of the shows. Um, I want to begin by talking about the South Carolina Senate because once again, we find ourselves in a situation of somewhat of a deadlock and a showdown over the Human Life Protection Act in the Senate. Uh, of course, we also have in the House sitting there the six-week abortion ban, which is the heartbeat bill that was passed by the Senate this year. The House passed the Human Life Protection Act, and it resides in the Senate. And thanks to the Republican caucus, and we do thank them for being willing to set this bill for special order to get floor debate. Um, I was there yesterday, and uh, just as a review before we get into the actual debate, uh, the Human Life Protection Act would prevent um, an abortion when a clinically diagnosable pregnancy is detected. In other words, when a woman knows that she's pregnant, when everything points to the fact that she's pregnant, then um, there would be no opportunity for an abortion. And that bill would eliminate probably 90% plus um, of all abortions in South Carolina, Right now, according to DHEC, as we discussed yesterday, and I keep going over these numbers, but they're just amazing to me uh, that we've gotten to this point. Uh, we're, we're having over 1,000 abortions a month in South Carolina, which is 1992, 93 levels. Uh, we're headed toward a continued increase because now Florida has passed and the governor signed into law a six-week ban, and that's going to bring more people from the southeast to South Carolina, where we are at 20 or 22 weeks, depending on who you talk to. Uh, you can get an abortion, um, I, I believe it's up to 22 weeks in South Carolina, and we don't have a waiting period the way North Carolina does. You can you can get an abortion um, a similar time frame in North Carolina, except you have to have a waiting period. I think it's three-day waiting period after you after you discover that you've pregnant or you're pregnant or you go to a doctor, I should say, and announce that you want to have an abortion. So people don't want to put up that that are in the mood to kill their babies. So they just come to South Carolina where there is no waiting period and up to 20 to 22 weeks, they can have an abortion. So the only thing that's going to slow this down, this, this um, genocide of a generation for in South Carolina, which half or better of them are coming from other states because of our law, is going to be for the South Carolina legislature to pass some restriction. And, of course, both chambers have passed their version, 
and they cannot come to agreement on which bill is going to win or even if they can combine the two. So yesterday, in the South Carolina Senate, you have to have three readings, and this is true in the House, uh, you have to have three readings of a bill before it passes. Normally, the third reading of a bill is perfunctory. That is, it's just a formality. Uh, you get to third reading, um, everybody has pretty much staked out their positions. If you've got enough votes to pass a bill on second reading, that's where the debate and most of the amendments get offered. It's not that they can't be, but it's, it's this where most of the time that happens. And then third reading is just a matter of maybe cleaning up a couple of things and, and passing the bill on to the next chamber or on to the governor, whichever is appropriate. So, or possibility of it going to a conference committee if it's made significant changes from another chamber. So yesterday was second reading. First reading is it, it just crosses the desk. Uh, it's announced essentially that the bill it, it's read in the chamber. We should say, and there's and there's nothing else really done with it on first reading. Second reading is where most of the debate takes takes place. And then the vote is taken, and yesterday's vote was 22 to 21 in favor of passing the Human Life Protection Act. So it was a win. I mean, you would think that there would be massive celebration among the pro-life community. Now, the reason there isn't is because we know that that bill has to go through third reading, and the idea all along by the opposition has been to sort of use second reading to gauge where the support is, to find out where the weaknesses of the bill are, and then to capitalize on those going into the third reading by staging a filibuster. So starting today, when the bill is discussed, there will be likely a filibuster, and there will be a few test votes taken to see if we have the votes to overturn a filibuster. It's widely believed by senators and people associated with the South Carolina Senate that we don't have the votes to, to set down a filibuster, that is, the votes for cloture, to move from the debate to the vote. We just don't, we don't have the votes to do that. It takes 26 votes to end a filibuster, and we're about three votes short. We would normally be two votes short, but we're about three votes short because we have one of our uh, Republican senators is on deployment. So um, this is going to come down today to a question of durability. Uh, do, or are Republican senators willing to push back against a filibuster to try to break it? I mean, to break a filibuster, sometimes that takes time. Sometimes it takes uh, the, you know, some quite frankly, some deal-making with some lawmakers that might be willing to say, okay, I'll give up the filibuster. I'm still going to vote against the bill, but I'm going to release the filibuster. I'm going to vote for cloture. And if that happens, we might be able to get the bill passed. If it doesn't, we're likely going to end up this session the same way we ended up the last session, the special session this past summer, where we ended up with two versions of the bill that couldn't be merged, and we're going to continue to see an increase in the number of babies that are killed in South Carolina through abortion. That, that, that number is going to continue to rise. In fact, it's going to skyrocket. Now, there is another possibility. If the Senate fails to pass this bill this week, then we've got another week, and in a couple of days left in the session, it could fall to the House to see if a vote can be had on 
the uh, six-week bill, which is the heartbeat bill. This is not as strong a bill. It's not worded as well as as the bill that the Senate is looking at, at the Human Life Protection Act. It does uh, protect life in the womb at six weeks. It would reduce the number of abortions. When this bill became the law for a month last year, we saw abortions fall to just under 200 a month. Right now, they're over 1,000. So you can see that it would be a dramatic decrease in the number of abortions performed in the state. It's not a perfect bill. It's not going to stop abortions, but it at least will protect the lives of a large number of babies every month if the six-week bill were to go into effect. But we don't have any idea at this point. I mean, I, I don't know if the House would take it up. If the House does take it up, I don't know if they have the votes to pass it. Um, it. You know, the question becomes, once you're down to the only thing left that we can do, or we're going to adjourn with months to go where the abortion rate is going to continue to climb, is there going to be more willingness on the part of the lawmakers to find a path to pass something to protect life in the womb? And I don't, I don't know the answer to that. I'm, um, we're just going to have to wait and see. I'll be down in Columbia today. Um, I'll be trying to persuade senators that the Human Life Protection Act should pass. And let me encourage you. Um, if you, if you want to contact your senator or even your House member, but I would focus on the Senate right now, if you would contact your senator, encourage them to do two things, vote for cloture and vote for the bill, those two things. And if you have a conversation with a senator who is dead set against the bill, see if you can convince them to vote for cloture, even if they intend to vote against the bill. Because I really believe we've got, yesterday we had 22 votes, it was 22 to 21, to pass the bill. And there was one person that I believe would have supported the bill that was out of the chamber at the time because they didn't know that a, that a vote was going to be taken um, there's an, and there's another person on deployment with the United States military. Uh, they're not going to be able to come back. Um, Senator Goldfinch is not going to be able to enter into this debate. And so with, with, with that in mind, uh, we still have 23. We, we, we still have enough votes to pass the bill, as demonstrated yesterday at 2221, if we can just get to cloture. But again, we've got to flip with Senator Goldfinch unavailable, we're going to have to flip three votes in order to get cloture, in order to get to the bill so we have a chance to pass it. So if you contact your senator, back to that, if you contact them and send them a message, please do so respectfully. You know, we do not win anybody over by insulting comments. I mean, I've, I've been told by senators, and, and I know this is true because I've heard some of these comments myself, uh, these senators have been called baby killers. Uh, it's been said they don't have a spine. I talked about that yesterday. I'm not going to go back into that today. Uh, it, and all kinds of things, thinking that they can be intimidated or shamed into voting for the bill. And that's just not going to work. I mean, it, you, you know how you are. Think about yourself. When somebody approaches you and they want you to do something, they're trying to convince you that they need to come around to your way of thinking. Do you really think it's going to help the situation if you try to shame them or make them angry by insulting them to get them to come around to your way? Um, I, I've, I've never understood that. In, in politics, that, that's a dead end. 
and particularly right now in the atmosphere in the South Carolina Senate. Uh, much damage has been done by well-meaning people who are saying things that they shouldn't say that are disrespectful that causes the debate sometimes to be lost. So let me just encourage you. I, we need to learn as Christians and just and for those of you who are not believers, uh, you need to learn we need to learn how to interact with our lawmakers in a way that's winsome, convincing, and compelling. And if we can do that, uh, we can win this debate, but we're not going to do it through threats or intimidation. All right, exactly four years ago to the day from when he announced his successful run for the White House, President Biden in an early morning video yesterday announced that he's running for re-election. Video ran about three minutes. He used images of January 6th to set the backdrop for a campaign that is obviously going to attack Republicans as extremists. That's going to be the strategy. Vote for Joe Biden because Republicans are extreme. Now, that's pretty fascinating considering the fact that this has been one of the most extreme administrations in our country's history when it comes to uh, the use of executive power, trying to force Americans into a particular mold, uh, trying to force Americans to accept transgender ideology, forcing Americans to embrace the ideas of, of woke progressives in a way that's governing really against the majority of Americans when it comes to some of these issues. And so for, for the Democrats to try to paint Republicans as the ones that are extreme, they're trying to flip the narrative. And of course, they're going to get all the help that they need from the legacy media. The legacy media is already coming after Republicans and has been trying to paint them as extremists, Tucker Carlson being out at Fox News, uh, the, the, the vitriol against uh, Tucker Carlson, the absolute glee being um, expressed by things people like the people on The View, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez mocking Tucker Carlson and basically saying that this is a, it was a great day for America when Tucker Carlson left Fox News for whatever reason. And of course, all of that relates to the fact they're trying to paint Republicans as extremists. As extremists. In 2019, or 2020 rather, the backdrop for President Biden was the protest in Charlottesville that he also used to paint Republicans as extremists. He ended the video with the line, finish the job. That was his last statement on the video running for re-election. For Republicans, that should translate into finish the Biden administration before he completely destroys the country. I mean, if we're, this is, you know, every election we hear these statements like, this is it, this is the last election, this is our last chance. Democracy, our constitutional republic, I should say, our particular form of democracy which is the best form, is very resilient. Uh, we shouldn't paint this in apocalyptic terms to try to motivate or scare people to go out and vote. At least, in my opinion, we shouldn't do that. That's what progressives try to do, intimidate and scare people and lie to them in order to achieve those goals. I think what we should do as Republicans is tell the truth, tell it boldly, and go out and win the election. Um, I, I don't think this is our last hope, but I think it would be incredibly difficult for the country to recover from another four years 
of a Biden administration. I mean, every every progressive woke principle that gets stacked up in the country is another principle that's got to be unstacked in order for us to thrive as a free country. And I think it's incredibly important that we um, we think about that. I have no reason. I have no idea why my camera suddenly decided to zoom in on my face. I don't know that you need to see that much of a close-up. <laughs> wow, I'm just having all kinds of uh, wonderful technical difficulties this morning, but that's okay. We're going we're gonna to sally forth and continue on here. Uh, so what should you get ready for when it comes to a Biden administration campaign? Uh, get ready to see a lot of Im- images of President Biden scarfing down ice cream cones, uh, probably while he's riding around in his vet, maybe with the top down, with his aviator sunglasses. Um, get ready to watch him ignore every question and, and duck all the major issues. He's not just—he's just not going to do that. He's not going to going to engage in with the press a whole lot. He hasn't done that in his first term. He's certainly not going to pick up the pace in his second term as his mental state continues to deteriorate. Uh, Biden's drawbacks, the things that could really make it difficult for him in re-election include serious concerns about his age, an economy that's reeling from inflation, uh, shortages, government regulation, an unstable stock market. All those things are happening domestically. And then, of course, also domestically, we've got a lot of cities, blue-led states and blue-led cities, that are completely out of control when it comes to crime and the enforcement of the law. And then foreign policy, there's plenty we could talk about there to the extent that there is a foreign policy. It's in shambles with the war in Ukraine dragging on, the disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan that now we know has led to the resurgence of ISIS there, and they're planning uh, you know, uh, attacks around the world on sports centers, business centers, so many other places, and they're doing it with impunity because they're under the protection of the Taliban government. We've, we, we've got an immigration policy that is under attack from the left and the right, and it should be because we, we've got a humanitarian crisis at the border. We've got a drug crisis at the border. We've got a, a dangerous situation where fentanyl is flowing into the United States and hurting the Americans, taking American lives, and we've, we've got known terrorists crossing the border, the southern border, making a threat against the United States more likely. Uh, all of these things that are happening. And then on top of that, the number of unaccompanied children is exploding. Uh, you've got hundreds, uh, over 100,000 unaccompanied children last year. I think the number was around 157,000. And it's way over 70,000 already that are coming into the country. And the question is, where are these children? Who are they being assigned to? The Biden administration doesn't know. We talked about that on the show uh, several weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, where we demonstrated in a hearing that the Biden administration has no clue about where about 80,000 of these unaccompanied minors are that have made it into the country. So on top of all this, Biden is governing against the will of the people. The American people are not clamoring for men to compete against women in sports. Uh, the American people are not clamoring for, um, f- to, for men to be able to invade women's bathrooms and locker rooms. 
I, I don't think the American people are clamoring or de demanding, rather, pornographic material for minors in our libraries, and they're not lining up to insist that our children be mutilated by gender-transforming surgeries, puberty blockers, and cross-hormone treatments. I mean, we just don't see uh, a lot of people that are interested in those issues, but we see that the Biden administration has made most, most of those front and center issues. President Biden also has the same problem that Jimmy Carter had with Billy Carter. If you remember those days, remember Billy Beer? Anybody remember that? Uh, except it isn't Biden's brother. It's his son that's causing extra scrutiny for the president. Uh, you know, there's, there, there's credible evidence out there uh, being presented by uh, journalists, by credible journalists, that we, we've got uh, Hunter Biden now living with his, I think it's his third wife, and their son that is living in the White House right now. I mean, we see them all over the place uh, going places together. I think uh, uh, Hunter Biden accompanied President Biden and Jill Biden on their trip to Ireland. Uh, so th this is what is Hunter Biden doing? I mean, there's there's plenty of evidence that Hunter Biden is pretty much the family bag man filling the family's pockets with cash from both friendly and uh, uh, countries and countries that are enemies. And we now have the IRS whistleblower, which we're going to get into later today. I promise we're going to get to that story today, who claims that he has cooperating evidence that there's a cover-up that the IRS is working with the Justice Department to cover up Hunter Biden's criminal behavior on behalf of the family. And Miranda Devine from the New York Post is one of the leading journalists who's investigating this possibility that Hunter Biden is just living and his wife and child are just living at the White House right now, possibly protecting Hunter from legal filings from a paternity suit. And that could also be President Biden's presenting the picture of himself as a loving father. I mean, it's one of these things where, and, and by the way, I'm not suggesting that President Biden is not a loving father. In fact, I think he is, but I, I, I think he's trying to protect Hunter and having him close to him all the time. What the American people see, if, the, if, if President Biden is, refuses to talk about the situation, and yet he, uh, in not talking about it, he presents himself going around on all these trips and doing things as a family with Jill and Hunter, the American people see that, and they're less likely to check out the stories or to pay attention to the stories that point to the evidence that's being presented that Hunter Biden has been engaged in questionable activities and probably criminal, alleged criminal activities related to being the, the cash collector for the family. And he passes that money around. And Joe Biden is the big, President Biden is the big guy um, in uh, information and evidence that's been presented that gets... 10%, I think, of it was, of what Hunter Biden is bringing to the table. And so painting uh, President Biden as corrupt because of the actions of his son is going to be more difficult for Republicans if the president's going around, he and, and the first lady, with uh, Hunter Biden and his family, and they look like just one big happy family. I, I mean, I get the political reasons for doing that. I understand why his operatives are doing it. They're going in the opposite direction. Usually when you have somebody that's toxic, you stay away from them. You, you don't want to be in the same camera shot with them. But that's not the case when you're talking about a family member. 
because if you lean the other way, you can present a picture of a loving family going about their business and mean Republicans that are coming along and attacking them. And this is a strategy that I'm hoping that the American people are not going to buy into. So don't expect to see Biden at any big rallies. He's not going to be holding massive press conferences about his reelection. Uh, this was it. This was his reelection announcement was a three minute can video. Uh, he ran a basement campaign in 2020, and he will, apart from cruising around in the vet, as we were talking about earlier, uh, and the occasional eating of an ice cream cone in public, uh, and wearing his aviator sunglasses out in public, uh, he's he's going to be a basement candidate, I predict, in 2024. And it's it's going to be up to Republicans to rally around a candidate that can beat him. All right, let's move on to talking about some commercial real estate woes. Uh, I promoted that in the opening of the show today, and it it is we are finding ourselves as a country with high inflation that's affecting a lot of areas, not just consumers like you and me trying to buy stuff, uh, people you know trying to uh, just get by with all the high prices. It's, it's affecting our real estate market. It's affecting the real estate market, and it's also affecting um, the value of office space, the value of apartment spaces, and the, a plummeting real estate values is a drag on the economy. It's also a threat to the banking industry. So let's get a little bit into that. And, and what, what leads this story is the fact that the United, Sta United States has achieved another record that Americans would not want to celebrate. Uh, we now have more empty office buildings in the country than at any other time in our history. The commercial real estate market has seen its largest downturn that we've seen in decades. Vacant office space has risen from 12.9% with some cities like San Francisco with a vacant office space rate as high as 29%. Now, 12.9% nationwide average vacancy in commercial office buildings is a record. We've never seen that much empty space in America's office buildings before. 29% in San Francisco, obviously, that's a record. Uh, there are several other cities that have record openings in real estate that's causing real estate values to drop. New York City has a vacant rate of 16%. Of, uh, that's a record. Chicago is at 20%, and we could keep going. I mean, major cities around the country are, are really having trouble getting people to come to the office, to rent office space. And what, when that happens, that means that these big buildings sitting in these cities begin to lose their value. Maintenance costs go up because of inflation, and it's causing an economic drag on the economy. Office building prices have dropped, that is their value, 25% since the start of 2022. This is 2023. So in a little over a year, we have commercial space in the country dropping by 25%. That's that's incredible. I mean, we hear that and we just think, oh, that's another number. Well, it's a little bit more than just another number. I mean, it's an incredible amount of value going out of one of the most valuable sectors in America, and that's commercial office space. 
that translates into more than just landlords losing money. I mean, you think, oh, boo-hoo, we've got these rich building owners that are losing money. Cry for them. No, it's not just that. Empty buildings mean empty streets, and empty streets means a lack of customers for restaurants, shops, other businesses in the area. It also means a lack of revenue for state and city governments who are losing property taxes because the property values are plummeting, and they're also losing taxes on food and entertainment sales that usually flow into the government, and it's making more difficult for uh, blue cities and blue states to maintain the high tax rates that they have. I know we think boo-hoo, but here's the problem. With the real estate affecting so many different things, the real estate market, commercial real estate market, that is, with that affecting so many things, it's dragging the economy down, and that affects all of us. It affects the banking industry because it gets around. When you think about banks, think about this. 40% of its income comes from commercial loans, or at least approximately 40%. Many banks have trillions of dollars tied up in buildings that are what? Gaining in value? Are these buildings skyrocketing? And they're, No, they're depreciating. They're losing value. And that can affect all of us if it leads to more bank failures. Uh, Elon Musk weighed in on this when he was asked about the real estate market, the commercial real estate market, and what it means for the United States if it gets into any more trouble. Commercial real estate used to be something that was a grade A asset. If a bank had commercial real estate holdings, th those would be considered the highest uh, security of the state. Wow. Some of the safest uh, assets you could have. Now, that is not the case anymore. So we really haven't seen the commercial real estate shoe drop. That's more like an anvil, not a shoe. Okay, so more like an anvil than a shoe. And what that means is, is if you heard him at the beginning of that clip, he said, look, uh, real estate values used to be the, one of the safest investments that banks could make. It was one of the safest real estate investments that a businessman or a, a property owner could make. And now that's no longer the case because the values are dropping so fast. Now, what's causing all this? You know, if we, we obviously can't address a problem if we don't know what the issue is. The issue right now is I've got to have more coffee. Okay. Uh, so the, the cause is the re remote work movement. I mean, there, there's been a revolution in the way we work because of the pandemic. People had to stay home. A lot of people were forced to work from home while we closed down all of our businesses and drove a truck through the U.S. economy for, during the pandemic. And people like staying at home. They like working at home. Um, look, I would, I would rather be doing this show at the radio station. I mean, I'd rather be still be doing the, the show where I have to actually get in the car and go to the station, do the work there. But, you know, circumstances change. So here I am essentially working from home. But at the same time, there are a lot of people in the business industry that are still working from home. Employers are trying to get them back but they don't want to come back. The employers are having trouble enticing them back to the office. Now they can just drop the hammer and say, look, you've got to come back to the office or you're out of a job. But the thing is, there are other businesses that are willing to offer remote work. And so if, if a business is going to keep their employees, they have to walk a line between trying to entice them back into the workplace and forcing them back in the workplace, which could possibly mean that they quit and go work somewhere else. Another factor is online shopping. 
I mean, the value of shopping malls. Now, think about this. You, we always thought, at least I thought, shopping malls were pretty much uh, guaranteed a certain income. They're not going to go out of business. Uh, we did see the failure of a shopping mall here in the upstate. But for the most part, shopping malls have been very successful. They've dropped 19% since 2022. And shopping mall value, that is what the if you were to go try to buy a shopping mall or if you were going to rent space in a shopping, shopping mall, the value of that has dropped 44% since 2016. According to UBS Group, AG, 50,000 retail stores are going to be forced to close their doors in the next five years. Now, why is that? Well, online shopping. It's pretty convenient when Amazon can drop a package at your door within 24 hours, in some cases, of you placing an order. And that means you don't have to fight traffic. You don't have to go walk around the mall. And we, another uh, disadvantage here is we become more sedentary. But the fact that um, brick-and-mortar stores are hurting the, the way they are is hurting commercial real estate value, which is driving down uh, bank investments, which is affecting the entire economy. Higher interest rates are playing a role in this uh, because when commercial real it, it's hurting the commercial real estate market because the rise of just a few points in the interest rates means millions more in cost each month for the banks that are financing these commercial real estate ventures and also for the owners. As the loss as the leases expire, uh, more and more companies find that they can't afford the lease space, which means cutbacks in order to consolidate. I mean, think about it this way. If you've got to get the same amount of people and much less space, that's going to cause you to take a step back and go, okay, can we do without some of these jobs? And that leads to job losses. Higher interest rates also affects the value of bonds and other securities that make markets, real estate, less profitable for large companies. According to the Green Street Analytics Group, U.S. property values have fallen 15% since this time last year. Now, let's, let's put this all back in the context of President Biden running to get reelected. And as he runs to get reelected, we look at an economy that's struggling, not only from inflation, but all of the fallout that inflation is causing. And part of that fallout is, well, quite frankly, the COVID policies of the Biden administration. Part of it, part of that inflation is coming from the amount of money that the Biden administration is willing to keep pumping into an economy that was on the road to recovery from the pandemic and got derailed because of all the money that got pumped into the economy. That when when you've got a trillion dollars, I think the last I read, there was as much as a trillion dollars of COVID money sitting there that hasn't been spent, and yet we're authorizing trillions more in certain areas, and that is that's driving down the value of everything, the value of real estate, commercial real estate, uh, mortgages, home mortgages because of inflation become harder to sustain. I mean, how many people are going out, if you look at the housing market, how many people are going out and buying a new home right now? Now they're looking at the interest rates and they're saying, you know, we'd like to buy a new house, we'd like to build a new house, but we're going to stand pat until we can see these interest rates start to go down so that we can afford it. 
that we can afford to do that. Higher interest rates affects the entire economy, and it affects it in a negative way. Now, there's one bright spot for the real estate market, and that's the expansion of warehouses and data centers. Now, what makes sense, right? I mean, if everybody's buying everything online, we've got to have a place to put that stuff to ship it from, and so that means more warehouse space is needed. And there was a lot of warehouse space that was sitting idle. Now that's being revitalized. And then data centers. Um, you know, you've got a, a lot of buildings going up that does nothing more than house data centers that processes orders. It doesn't employ a whole lot of people. It just processes a lot of orders, uses a lot of technology. Um, and but but that's not going to have the positive impact on the economy that commercial real estate values going back up would have. Uh, while the value of hotel and apartment buildings have dropped uh, because of people moving out and the, some of the real estate issues that we've talked about because they can't afford the rent, the rents are going up. Owners can charge higher rents and higher rates to stay afloat. And so far, that's keeping the hotel industry and the apartment industry it's, it's pretty much keeping their heads above the water, but we don't know how long that can last because we don't know what the limit of America's pocketbooks are when it comes to paying for living space, as well as commercial real estate. All right, so that's something to think about when we're thinking about the Biden administration and whether or not the Biden administration has done a good job and whether or not we need to give Biden four more years. I hope the answer to that is going to be the same answer that I would give. Obviously, he doesn't need four more years. All right, six reasons that the IRS whistleblower is going to blow open the Department of Justice Biden family protection racket. I love the title of this. This is by Margot Cleveland. I referenced it yesterday at the end of the show, and we're going to spend most of the rest of the program today talking about it. Uh, Margot writes for The Federalist, and I'm just going to go through. She says there are six reasons that this whistleblower scandal is going to be finally the thing that opens up the, the Biden family, shows the corruption, and brings Hunter Biden and perhaps other family members to justice. While Wednesday's letter from the whistleblower's attorney to the congressional oversight chairs spoke only in, a, in cryptic terms um, that, in, uh, that individuals that can be uh, that are directly familiar with the case, reveal the whistleblower has accused two Biden-appointed U.S. attorneys of refusing to seek a tax indictment against Hunter Biden despite career investigators' recommendation to do so. So here's the first part of the scandal, the cover-up, the Department of Justice, not just the IRS, but you've got U.S.-appointed attorneys that are saying there's evidence here that Hunter Biden should be indicted. And according to the whistleblower... Those, the, all of that evidence is being covered up. It's being ignored. Uh, the attorneys are not, uh, the U.S. attorneys are not bringing charges because of pressure from the Justice Department, which is coming from the Biden administration. The sources also claim the whistleblower's disclosures established that Garland refused, that's Merrick Garland, who is uh, the attorney general, he refused Delaware U.S. Attorney David Weiss's request for special counsel protection and that Garland testified inaccurately when he, when he represented to the Senate Judiciary Committee that Weiss had full authority to bring cases in other jurisdictions if he feels it's necessary. 
It isn't merely the seriousness, excuse me, of the whistleblower's claims here um, it, it, that should shake those who are sheltering Hunter Biden, but the promise of cooperating evidence. You know, uh, we've we've talked about before that when Democrats level ch- level charges against Republicans, often it's without any evidence. I mean, we saw this in so many different ways. We saw it in Justice Clarence Thomas when he was being um, brought to possibly be on the Supreme Court. It wasn't that there was a lot of evidence to support harassment charges, but it was the seriousness of the charge. Uh, The same thing happened with Kavanaugh. There was no evidence. There was no credible evidence that Kavanaugh had done anything that deserved the kind of treatment that he had before the Senate committee, um, the Judiciary Committee. But but he got that kind of treatment because of the seriousness of the charge. So what we're seeing here with this these issues with Hunter Biden is not just the seriousness of the charge that's driving the concerns, but it's also the cooperating evidence that's being presented or being claimed by the whistleblower. The whistleblower's attorney, Mark Lytle, reported that that uh, reportedly maintains that his client can identify contemporaneous witnesses to cooperate his claims of political influence. Uh, the story goes on to say the whistleblower will, quote, be able to talk about these meetings that he attended that were both agents with both agents and prosecutors and how he summarized those meetings and put in writing and distributed those to folks within an, the IRS and sometimes other agents. Lytle claims, adding that those contemporaneous memoranda and emails will end up corroborating his credibility. All right, let's decipher this a little bit. In other words, the whistleblower was at a level where they were in meetings with people who had the ability to make decisions, critical decisions about Hunter Biden's future and whether he was going to be prosecuted or not, and in those meetings, there was information shared, memoranda shared, emails flowing back and forth from, from the people that were in the meeting that had the responsibility to make this the decision, and they were ignoring evidence. And Lytle, um, the attorney, that, you know, says that the whistleblower has plenty of documented evidence to back all that up. He's not just coming and saying, look, this is serious. We got to pay attention to it because if we don't, we're going to, we're going to miss the boat here. No, he has the emails. He has the memoranda. He has the testimony and the eyewitness account of other people involved in this case that he knows were involved in the cover-up. So sources also maintain DOG Inspector General Michael Horowitz has already begun reviewing documents that purportedly corroborate the whistleblower's claim. They say he sought out both IRS and FBI witnesses, indicating several paths exist to confirm the accusations of political bias that are being raised by the whistleblower. Now, I got to tell you, the DOJ Inspector General has been at least somewhat um, bipartisan in the way that he's approached this. And so getting the DOJ inspector general involved, Horowitz, uh, it could open up a real can of worms for the president as he tries to get reelected. And more of this stuff comes out about Hunter Biden and his connection and providing money for the family. All right, the second thing, IRS agent 
is nonpartisan and credentialed. The whistleblower's apparent nonpartisan pedigree is another reason for participants in the Biden protection racket to be afraid. The whistleblower's not a political person, doesn't have a political agenda. Lytle, the attorney for the whistleblower, told Fox News last week he is a career law enforcement official who has uh, who hasn't made any political donations and doesn't even use social media. Now, unfortunately, in our world, that's a plus to not be in social media, to not have any statements that can be traced back because the first thing that's going to happen when this whistleblower presents all of their evidence is they're going to be attacked from viciously from the legacy media and from woke Democrat leaders that are all going to say this is this is false because this person is biased and the fact that he's not demonstrated he or she has not demonstrated any kind of political involvement up to this point lends credibility to the fact that they're a whistleblower and court and 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 in fact, Lytle says he's just a guy who likes his job as a law enforcement officer, as an investigator, and he takes it seriously, and he's dedicated, Lytle explained, and when he sees something that's not routine and doesn't follow the rules or something that may be affected by politics, that's what made him come forward. Lytle went on to say, my client wrestled with whether or not to come forward. The whistleblower's attorney told Fox News he had sleepless nights he decided he could not live with himself if he stayed quiet and said nothing. Well, of course he had sleepless nights. I mean, they're going to be compounded by more sleepless nights once he brings all of the information forward because, like I said, he's going to be relentlessly attacked. You have to, when you don't have the facts on your side, you have to go after the messenger. When the facts that are on your side will lead to serious problems for the Biden administration, then everybody's going to come after the messenger. Strengthening the whistleblower's claims of a nonpartisan motivation is his insistence that when he comes forward, this is not to talk about just one party or the other party. In fact, Lytle stressed that his client wants both sides of the political aisle to ask him questions and to cross-examine him. So this is this is pretty I mean that that's a serious that represents a serious problem for the Biden administration if Hunter Biden's activities can be and the activity of the government I mean particularly if President Biden can be impl is implicated as it's alleged that the Biden administration is involved in a cover up of Hunter's activities and the investigation into those activities that's really going to hurt President Biden's re-election campaign. You know, the Biden laptop story that was it there was just a, a lie told by the main the main mainstream media, the legacy media, that the laptop was a, a Russian infiltration story. It was a Russian story trying to influence the election. And of course, the Hunter Biden laptop was a true story. We know that Hunter Biden left his lap, laptop in a, a repair shop and it was recovered. And that information was made available, and it was buried by social media and by the legacy media. Uh, and then there was a lie made up about it that it be it's beginning to look like Anthony Blinken, uh, who's now the uh, Secretary of State, it's beginning to look like that he was involved in the whole lie that came out about the Biden laptop. And so as, as these things come to light, 
And if this whistleblower can demonstrate that the government's been involved from the IRS to the Justice Department, that's going to be serious trouble for the Biden administration. Uh, the third thing, dual authorization was required. The IRS whistleblowers claims that two Biden-appointed U.S. attorneys inappropriately and for political reasons declined to seek a tax indictment against Hunter Biden carry more weight given the dual authorization procedures required by the DOJ for criminal cases. The Department of Justice manual provides that tax divi uh, division oversees the tax division oversees federal criminal enforcement. Thus, while a grand jury is empowered to investigate tax crimes, the tax division must first approve and authorize the United States Attorney General uh, Attorney's Office rather to use a grand jury to investigate criminal tax violations. Accordingly, in tax cases, prosecutions general generally require two independent assessments that criminal prosecu prosecution is appropriate. So that's the way the system works. In the case of Hunter Biden, both career investigators and career prosecutors in the DOG tax, uh, DOJ rather, tax division signed off on the recommended char charges the whistleblower maintains. So you've got both the IRS looked at this and said, yep, there's a problem. The DOJ looked at it and said, yep, the IRS is right. We agree there's a problem, that charges should be filed, and then charges were buried. And if that turns out to be the case, again, big trouble for the Biden administration. Number four, criminal violations seem obvious. Quote, of course, Biden officials are interfering in his son's cause and his case. Why else has Hunter Biden skated for five years? Now, that title from former federal prosecutor Andrew McCarthy's Friday New York Post article capsulizes perfectly another reason those running the Biden family protection racket should be shaking. The political favoritism shown Hunter Biden is obvious. And as it becomes more obvious, then more and more Americans are going to understand this and, and, and be reluctant to give the father of the crime family here another four years as president. Who else could lie on a federal firearm forum to purchase a handgun only to lose physical possession of the gun and have it turn, turn up off, uh, across the street from a school without getting charged with a federal crime? McCarthy wrote about this, saying the gun offenses are so straightforward that they'd take a competent investigator five days, not five years, to wrap up a prosecutable case. So what is it that's preventing that from happening? Oh, it's interference by the Biden administration in the Justice Department and in the IRS in those investigations. The timing is suspect. That's number five. The timing renders the whistleblower's claims believable. Recall that in March of 2022, the New York Times began prepping the country for an indictment of Hunter Biden by soft-peddling his criminal conduct. The Times even previewed several potential defenses the president's son can assert to counter the series of predicted criminal charges. The article was a transparent attempt by the Times to get ahead of an anticipated story, namely that a grand jury had indicted Hunter Biden, but a grand jury indictment never dropped. Instead, about six months later, the whistleblower reportedly filed complaints related to the investigation with the U.S. Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration and the DOJ's Office of Inspector General. The whistleblower's complaints indicated charges had been recommended and approved 
by the tax division but never materialized because the Biden-appointed U.S. attorneys didn't seek grand jury indictments as recommended. It was recommended that they do that. The evidence was there. It was enough evidence to indict, but they refused to call for an indictment. And that has to happen before an indictment can be made. Number six, the scandal reaches the FBI and the President of the United States. The Biden-appointed U.S. attorneys who allegedly declined to seek grand jury indictments against the president's son are not the only ones implicated. However, the whistleblower's allegations reportedly also reach FBI headquarters, although that doesn't necessarily mean Christopher Wray, who is the director. The unnamed sources further maintain the whistleblower's disclosures claim that specific DOJ employees place structures, uh, rather strictures, on questions, witnesses, and tactics investigators may be allowed to pursue that could impact President Biden. This accusation suggests political corruption beyond the refusal of the DOJ to charge Hunter Biden with tax crimes. Whether the specific DOJ employees refers to individuals working at FBI headquarters or elsewhere with the DOJ is unclear. Either way, the whistleblower's claim conflicts with Garland's testimony before the Senate Judiciary Committee that he had left the matter of Hunter Biden to the Delaware U.S. Attorney's Office and the FBI squad working with him. Garland's testimony suggests that whoever instituted these strictures acted without the authority to do so. Well, that's bad enough, but the implication is worse, namely that either FBI headquarters or other DOJ employees have kept the president from being incriminated during a multi-year unraveling of Hunter Biden's complicated business ventures. Now, this is all by Margot Cleveland, and you can find it at The Federalist and read it for yourself. I know that's a lot of information to go over, but I'm telling you, this is one of the real challenges to the Biden administration. I mean, this is the, the, when you have not just a whistleblower. We've had whistleblowers come forward. Um, they make accusations, and there's, there's no corroborating evidence. There's, there has to be something that backs up. The fact that the whistleblower has evidence, the fact that it's pretty obvious that charges were about to be filed because of writing from the New York Times saying that that's, that was going to drop, regardless of the fact that when, when – or rather when you consider the fact – that it's obvious that Hunter Biden has been involved in this for a long period of time in the investigation without charges being filed, all screams, or at least suggest, that there is some serious problems um, because of cover-up taking place, and we don't know how far or how high that cover-up goes. Um, all right, let's see if we've got time for just one more uh, quick piece here. Uh, President Biden, we were talking about earlier in the show this morning, first story, in fact, about President Biden's re-election bid. There are several things that he said in the video, in the three-minute video, that are just absolutely lies. I mean, I don't know what else to say about them. They're, you know, to be kind. Uh, he said things that were factually inaccurate. Uh, to be forthright, they were just lies. And the first thing is cutting Social Security. Biden said on the video, around the country, MAGA extremists are lining up to take on those bedrock freedoms, cutting Social Security that you paid your entire life into while cutting taxes for the very wealthy. Now, that's just a lie. 
There, and, and this has been a repeated lie that Republicans have pushed back on over and over again. House Speaker McCarthy has repeatedly said that Social Security and Medicare are off the table in lawmakers' budget and debt ceiling negotiations. Now, let me say this. I think they should be on the table. I think if we're going to stay solvent as a country and we're going to rescue Social Security because we're getting reports now that Social Security's got about 10 years left uh, before it's going to be insolvent if something isn't done, and that's going to mean we're going to get into the same situation that France is in where we're going to have to have there are going to be draconian measures to try to address this that causes civil unrest. So I, I'm not one of these people who needs to... I, I don't think McCarthy should be going around bragging about the fact that Republicans are not taking on Social Security and Medicare. Republicans need to take on the debt and the deficit. Um, and so far, we're not doing it. But even though I think it's something that should be done, we're not doing it, and the president is accusing us of doing it. All right, number two, stand up for the right to vote. I mean... This is all coming from the Daily Signal today, by the, by the way, Heritage Foundation. Uh, at several points in the ad announcing his re-election campaign, Biden references the right to, to, the, to vote being under attack. That's been the work of my first term, to fight for our democracy, Biden says. He says MAGA extremist. Again, you're going to hear that over and over again. MAGA extremist. His only play, because of his own failures, is to paint the opposition as being crazy. They want to take, take away numer numerous freedoms and rights, all while making it more difficult for you to be able to vote. That is absolutely false. Um, voting as far, and let, let's, think of, let's think about turnout in uh, 2022 in the midterms. Let, let's talk about turnout in Georgia specifically, because Georgia was kind of the ground zero for all of this, where uh, President Biden talked about we're going back to Jim Crow laws to prevent black people from voting. University of Georgia Survey Research Center poll of voters in 2022 found that 72.6% of black Georgians said that their experience of voting in Georgia was excellent. 23.6% said it was good. 0% said it was poor. So where is all these... It, Georgia made the, a change in the law. It caused the uh, Major League Baseball to move the All-Star game out of Georgia to Colorado. Um, and, and yet here we, we see that as we get through an actual election cycle, we see that African-American voters in Georgia were more satisfied with the process than they've ever been. The university survey also found that 19% of black Georgia voters said voting was easier in 2022 than in 2020. 72.5% said there was no difference. Among white voters, 13.3% said they thought it was easier to vote, and 80% found no difference. I mean, we could go on, we could talk about Texas. Uh, Georgia and Texas were the two main states. We could talk about Florida. But in all these cases, people found voting to be easier, and minorities were voting in significant, if not record, numbers. And, of course, number three, banning books. The Biden administration accuses Republicans of wanting to ban books. Uh, what Republicans are trying to do is keep pornographic material in libraries away from minors. That's it. 
and to keep pornographic material out of the library. The library shouldn't be the the hub for pornography in America. And I think most Americans understand and believe that. And then number four, freedom is fundamental. In the video, Biden says several times that he would protect freedom. Quote, personal freedom is fundamental to who we are as Americans. He later adds, around the country, MAGA extremists, just get ready to hear that a thousand times a day, MAGA extremists are lining up to take those on those bedrock freedoms. Stand up for our personal freedom. The question we're facing in the years ahead, will we have more freedom or less freedom, more rights or fewer rights? I know that I, what I want the answer to be, and I think you do too. And, and yet, over two years in office, President Biden has boosted regulation compared with his immediate predecessor, Donald Trump. He has cost business $318 billion. That's according to the Wall Street Journal. That's how much extra it's costing business since President Biden has decided to drop the hammer on regulations, rules and regulatory um, information imposed by the Biden administration. A lot of the things that Biden has tried to do through executive order and the regulatory system has ended up being unconstitutional. And that doesn't speak very well for somebody who thinks that they're going to be a champion for freedom. All right, that's all the time that we've got. We're out of time for the program today. Uh, we're going to be coming back tomorrow. I should have a, a report. Oh, there's my music now. Great, now that we get to the end of the show. <laughs> but we should have a report for you tomorrow about the South Carolina Senate, the outcome of the debate. Uh, we'll also look at other national news stories. And between now and then, how about tell somebody about the program? Would you point them to drtonybean.com? Tell them about the podcast. Right now, you can find it at Spotify, hopefully by the end of the week. I keep making promises, but you'll find it in other platforms. Have a great week, and remember... Bye.